Okay, roll the drums. On the West, Windsor, Windsor Ascot, Ascot, Maidenhead, Maidenhead Bracknell, Bracknell, Wokingham, Wokingham Henley, Henley, Reading. Reading. Okay, Ta-da. The Voice, River Radio, of the Thames Valley. Welcome everyone to this show, Let's Do Lunch, with me, Jenny Tishi. This is a show all about food and nutrition, and we invite a series of guests from the world of cooking, from the world of sport, that always relates back to food. Today I have a unique guest, and I'm talking about a subject which really intrigues me. The list of questions that I've created to ask this guest today was a very easy list to, to create. So, Paul Couchman, who is known as the Regency Cook, specialises is an 1830s British cookery. He offers historical dinners and cooking classes out of the Regency Townhouse, a restored 1820s mansion in Brighton. Good morning, Paul. How are you? Um, it's lovely to be here. It's great. Lovely to meet you. Yes. Yeah, you too. I've uh, followed you on social media for a short while. I wish it was longer. <laughs> I'm glad I found you now. Um, but I want to ask you so many questions. So let's start off with talking a little bit about cookbooks. Now, those that know what I do, I write cookery books for a living. But back in the 1800s, it wasn't such a common thing, was it? Now that's right. So what you get right back in the beginning, you get these really high status books that really um, tell what the king was eating. So one of the first books we've got is the form of cookery, one of the first cookbooks. We're not sure if the recipes were actually used or if they were just a show off. Wow. Because you, you know, it, yeah, in recipes like that, you have these really expensive ingredients and it's all beautifully done in a beautiful manuscript. Um, and it's very aspirational. And the idea, you know, like we buy cookery books nowadays and we, maybe the latest Nigella, you stick it on your shelf and you don't necessarily cook from it. And yeah. you, you let people see it. Well, this is the idea we think from the very earliest cookbooks. They might not actually have been used. They're more like showing off, you know, showing what you can what you <laughs> what you can create for your guests because food in that very beginning stage just as it is now was a way of um carrying favors with people of where getting people to do what you wanted and also to impress people that you could you know provide all these resources for them and so that that carries right on to today doesn't it with diplomatic meals and the things that rich people will eat with each other very much about prestige and showing off and the wealth and you yeah. also you know what is it the um the culture you have you know the way you can um show off your knowledge and and your intelligence through what you put on your table. I was going to ask, so the people that created those manuscripts for the the wealthy individuals to be able to show off, was it those downstairs that were responsible for creating the recipes for those upstairs? Well, that's the problem. In the beginning stages, we don't know who made the food. We know who wrote it down, that medieval uh, recipes, but there is very little known about who made it, you know. So we're not even sure who wrote about it. 
about uh, the authors is all very vague. It's a bit like if you look, think about medieval paintings, you know, there's very little about the people who made the paintings at all, is the Artists become very gradually become known. It's very similar with cookbooks as well. You don't know who wrote them. So we can only guess. We can only guess. But luckily we've got the recipes and there are people that make this medieval food and it's delicious. And that's one thing. I mean, if, if there's one point I can get through this interview with you is that um, historic food is delicious <laughs> it's not everyone has this idea and i get it so often people come up to me and say well you know that 18th century food it can't be very nice can it you know um we we <laughs> might we have gone off some, <laughs> it's been yeah, there so well, long. We, well indeed we make such better food now but actually some of the food if you think of some of the horrible mass production food we eat now mm. is worse than what they're eating then so i'm here to i'm here today to like say go out you know go out Look at um, old recipes and try and make them because they're really, you, you'd be surprised how delicious they are. And you're here to champion those. And do you know, oh, I, I love the fact that, you know, we've got these beautiful manuscripts that are there to show off what people yes. could afford and, and the way in which I guess the food could be presented was another way of showing yes. off. Does that mean that the recipes you create, given your speciality, are really posh? No, because I do the whole scale, and you're talking about my um, the dining experiences I do sometimes. We used to call them dine like a servant <laughs> because that. we used to take yeah we used to take people to the kitchen, and sometimes they would eat what the servants ate as well. And some the thing is with servants though they would actually eat quite well because if you think about all the food, and I, I have to sort of. I have to sort of um, put a picture in your head of these great big long tables full with food. There was never an expectation that it would all be eaten. It was just impossible to do that. So this food had to go somewhere. And often it went downstairs. You so, know, so those downstairs did actually eat really well. Absolutely. So this was my whole, you know, the whole thing about doing the dining events. You eat in the kitchen, but you're getting the great food because it's all leftovers from those rich people upstairs who just couldn't eat it all. Yeah. Yeah. So they did eat rather well. I mean, I love the oh, idea yeah. of the dining like a servant. So when you do, yeah, I know we're going to come on to what you're doing currently with the sorts of experiences yeah. that you run today but the dine like a servant experience would you be cooking the sort of food that therefore would have been cooked upstairs assuming that the, the, the people downstairs would be eating the leftovers exactly exactly a great way yeah. to eat isn't it <laughs> brilliant way, way of eating as well and we were, we were cooking in the kitchen alongside the people who were um, eating and one of the guests actually one day she um, arrived early and um, she said oh can I help out in the kitchen and she spent all of the evening instead of in her place at the dining table she spent all the evening in the kitchen with us and she absolutely loved it she said the experience of cooking you know old kitchen with us we gave her we gave her some old aprons and stuff and she looked apart and she, she you know it's completely immersive so so maybe one one day in the future it'd be lovely to actually get people to be servants for the evening you know yeah, it come into help. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, what can people expect of a of a dining experience? I know you do some online uh, now as well, but if they were to come to the Regency Townhouse in Brighton, or even if you were to present online, what can people expect of that whole experience? So, what I used to do, and this is, we played around. I did about nine of them, and we used to play around with themes. And um, I used to do things like dine like a servant goes to France, and I would find 18th century French recipes, um, things like confit duck because it, you know it's got a long heritage. It's absolutely delicious. And we used to make. I did floating islands as well. Have you had those? Um, floating, yeah, I know those. Yeah, I mean, I mean. 
I'd probably never ever do it again for 25 people because it was a complete nightmare <laughs> with the freshness of the eggs. Uh, anyway, we got through it, but it was really quite quite tricky. But we did Il we did Confit Duck, we did all these lovely French things. I did an Italian one, for the Italian one, and you've, you've, you've bound to have had caponata. Yep, yep. Another thing with a long... Uh, the the um, ingredients change, obviously, with peppers and things, but it's got a long history, so we served up caponata, uh, and we served this beautiful... Um, it's called a bonnet, which is a sort of set. It's got a layer of biscuits, and it's a sort of chocolate set uh, terrine that you eat in a slice. So it's creamy and uh, chocolatey and then crispy at the bottom. Um, it was absolutely delicious. So, yeah, those sort of things anyway. So it's it's every time just trying to find something from the history books that's delicious, that sort of tells a story as well, because that's the whole point. You want to... Yeah, you want people to be immersed in the in the experience as well. And they're eating, in, you know, sometimes in the beautiful dining room, sometimes in this very atmospheric kitchen. And people would come together who didn't know each other as well on these great big long tables and have this food that was just, you know, something they'd probably not eaten before. Yeah, so it's lovely you, to do. So those are the experiences that you, you did run in mm. person. Obviously, we had this uh, pandemic thing, uh, inconvenience yeah. that was. So <laughs> what happened to the business during that time, that period? So that's when I had to go online, mm. and I'd never, I'd never done this before at all. So I had to buy all the quit, all the kits, and we converted my kitchen downstairs. Um, it wasn't finished. My kitchen wasn't finished, but I finished one wall at the back <laughs> for the camera. Perfect. Just the one angle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the one angle. Yeah, put all the lights up and the cameras and the microphone. Goodness knows what. And then I got all my um, got the gear out because well, you saw we just chatted before, and I'm in the, I'm in my full period costume at the moment. Um, and you stand there, and the first time was you know it was quite nerve wracking actually. And I stood there and I made. Um, what was the first one I did? I think I did hot cross. No, I did mince pies. I did a Christmas, no, Christmas pudding. I did a Christmas pudding course the first time. So we made individual Christmas puddings um, in places as far as South Africa. There were people um, in France. There were people over in Canada um, and people just down the road in, in Brighton as well. Brilliant. We all came together online during the... Um, yeah, during those those you know those dark days of the pandemic, and we made pudding together, I and mean, it was it was the most lovely you, thing you to united do. United over Christmas pudding. Uh, just exactly. let's take that as an example. How does Christmas pudding yeah. from the eighteen hundreds vary from the way in which, if we're lucky, we make our own Christmas puddings today? Is there a variation? Is there? A, and it must be. That's why people want to learn it, right? Well, the thing is, and the, this is what's lovely about um, Christmas recipes especially, they don't really change much. Uh, if anything, they're just going to get worse because people take shortcuts. So the recipe I use is from a cook called Eliza Acton, and she's marvellous because she's the first person to really put recipes in the um, structure that we know. Ah, so okay. a, you know, so when was a, she doing this? 1845 is the book. It's called A Modern... What's it? Modern. It's 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 a quite lovely title, and it? it's something about the modern family, which is nice if you think about it. It's been an old book, but her thing was you've got the method and the um, ingredient separates. Okay. So before this period, everything sort of hobbled together. Oh, you know? So it was like an essay prior to this, and then you yeah, ended yeah, up well, having the two separate elements, which is actually really useful. But if you think about lot, if you look at lots of the old recipes, they're actually really short because the people knew what they were doing. So mm. I look at it, if you look at modern cooks, actually, what they write in the kitchen to each other, they're 
tiny as well. So it's this idea, if you know what you're doing, you don't need, a, uh, you don't need an essay. And I think these days the recipe is getting longer and longer because people don't know quite what to do in the kitchen anymore. So the instructions need to be more detailed. But back yeah. then, they're, oh, they're simple. You're putting techniques in the methodology now as opposed to having yeah. to, you know, as opposed to assuming that people know the techniques. So it's just another exactly. step in the process. That's really yeah. interesting. The other thing that I was uh, fascinated by was the fact that people used to call recipes receipts back then. Do you know yes. why, that, why that was? Well, I've just been looking this up for you, oh, yeah. basically. <laughs> And what's odd about, because oh, there's lots of words that do this, uh, words change their meaning and then change their meaning again. And, and it can get very confusing. And receipt and, re- and um, recipe is one of them. So there is a point where receipt and recipe mean the same thing. So they're both used as ways of describing a recipe. Mm-hmm. But receipt is actually older. And that goes back to this idea of a um, doctor's receipt you know, oh. a sort of list of instructions for, for making medicine. Yeah. So yep. that's the original. That then changes to um, using that for cooking instructions because, well, we, we might talk about this later, but often the two things are together in old cookbooks. You yep. get medicine, medical recipes right next to um, recipes for pudding. You know, it's very odd. <laughs> um, but that's because science and cooking, are, are, you know, science hasn't changed into science as we know it. It's more... Um, things that people would know at home and write down themselves, you know, homemade recipes or remedies, as they were. Yeah, so that's another interesting point, yeah. actually. The whole science of flavour creation. And, yeah. you know, again, that is a lost knowledge. I think people assume, you know, oh, well, I know when something tastes good and I know when it doesn't taste good. But how aware were the cooks of the 1800s of the sort of, you know, kind of salt, acid, sugar fat you know combinations of flavor profiles they must have been fairly sort of scientifically minded am i right in saying that um, but a lot of these things it's about taste though isn't it mm. uh, i mean uh, this is uh, there's a great acid salt fat heat so do you know that book yes i've got it yeah <laughs> yeah but that she she really talks about um embodied um ideas about cooking that you can smell it you can taste it you can feel it you can hear it you know all these all these senses if you think about the senses they haven't changed mm. you know right from the greek period onwards roman period people had senses they they could smell they could taste they could. so the idea a lot of um uh, food historians talk about this is the idea that taste hasn't changed so much you know yeah we you know when it's like, good by tasting it exactly yeah. <laughs> we might not like gloopy things quite as much as we did or we might not like jelly you know savory jellies as much but very much of the food that i create is still liked by people now yeah you our know, palates because... actually haven't changed have they exactly yeah we're humans we're humans i mean that's the great connection you can make with people from you know 200 years ago that they would enjoy the same pudding as you you know like i do like that idea you know yeah yeah, yeah we, we, we we were in the yeah 1800s and we so what sort of puddings would they have consumed in those days well the, the great thing about the 1800s is that put, it was pudding tastic you know every pudding imaginable i'm i mean just i mean so you think about these suet puddings we know now jam roly poly uh let me think spotted um, dick was that one of spotted those dick, absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the whole idea of having something really substantial, you know, with good ingredients in it that's cooked for a long time until it becomes really unctuous and delicious. Mm. Um, And they love them. And what is interesting about pudding is it's served uh, by the the rich eater and the poor eater. So the ingredients might change, but... 
the way they serve them. So you have these beautiful, I've got some you can't see obviously on the radio, but there's some molds, um, some food molds behind me. The rich people would put the pudding into a mold and then turn it out. So you've got, you know, like a jelly. Yeah. So you've got this beautiful, and then we decorate it around the edge, maybe with cream and with little um, candied fruits or something like that, little leaves, you know, so it would be pushed up. But the, but the poor would eat the same pudding, but you know, with less raisins, maybe with less sugar. But, you know, it's, so it's this, this lovely connection. I'm pudding I can go on forever about. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great, though, that these were yeah. things that were accessible both to, you know, the sort of poorer members of society and the richer members of society. Yeah. So we know that some of the recipes or receipts, you know, they were in, in the form of manuscripts and therefore there is a record of perhaps or a traceability amongst yes. those richer people from society. But what about those poorer people? Um, were they writing down any of the recipes in the 1800s? Now, it depends what you mean by poor. Um, so you get, and um, what's interesting, because I've got one, you've got manuscript cookbooks that were written by, I don't know, people, maybe servants working in kitchens. We, know, we have some of these. So, you know, you're getting close to the working classes with the servants, but a servant was actually relatively well off. And that's what people forget. Mm. They always think, you know, all the working classes were servants, but most of the, most of the working classes were actually incredibly poor. And so the servants had quite a high position. And you see it a bit in downtown, you know, this high, um, hierarchy of, of class, you, they do that very well. And so... Yeah, so we can only guess what they ate. What we do know is there was a lot of street food. Oh, so people wow. who couldn't cook for themselves, really, really, you know, especially Victorian, but again, in Regency times, people who couldn't cook for themselves would be um, would buy it on the streets. Is so that because whole... they didn't have a kitchen or access to cookware that they, because they couldn't afford it, that they couldn't cook for themselves, therefore they'd buy street food? Or is they didn't have the knowledge of how to cook, so they had to rely on street food? It's a mixture of both, but definitely, if you think about ovens, they only really come into um, a lot of poor people's houses, right? But, you know, you can go up to the that people didn't have yeah. ovens, you know, that they would use communal baking ovens and stuff if they needed to bake something maybe once or twice a week. So you've got this idea that fuel is expensive. Mm. You know, it's it, well, things, well, look, it goes round, doesn't it? Look what's happening now. But <laughs> communal <laughs> baking ovens come back. <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? You know, wouldn't that be wonderful? No, I, d- I don't say it would be wonderful, but I'll, the, the um, this idea that you. Um, you aren't able, maybe in one week in this period, to heat water, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so yeah. if you had a few pennies, you would go outside and you, you could get something substantial from street sellers. And so there was a lot of people selling a lot of food on the streets. What sort Not of street food would it be? I was going to say, what would it be? <laughs> well, we, we, we know definitely about pies. And mm. there's a wonderful film where you see the, I can't remember which one it is, but they actually, actually show a pie maker, you know, a very poor woman making the pies to sell on the streets. A lot of pies, but all things like cherries and stuff as well, watercress and, you know, all these, um, they call them, um, there's illustrations of street um, uh, sellers mm-hmm. and there is everything, everything basically. You could, fried fish was another thing they used to sell. Oh gosh, that's incredible. That's well, the I beginning guess of fried chips, it fish was, and chips, yeah. Is that where it came from originally? It was yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, it was sort of a niche must. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. So that's really interesting. So, but everything, I guess, all of the, the raw materials were coming from the local environment. So everything exactly. would have been seasonal. And yes. I guess it wouldn't have travelled from. I mean, you, in London, would you have been getting any produce from Scotland, for example? Was that even possible at that stage? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, well, the job, it depends what, because mm. obviously things perish. Yeah. And they had, that are very, this is um, sometimes forgotten, but they did have a very integrated system of carriages and um, houses, uh, uh, stops where you could put your horses and then carry on travelling. So people did travel. It wasn't like that. But obviously it took longer, and so things go off. Yeah, but no we fish. Do, <laughs> no fish you know, this is, I was, I was going to talk about fish, though, because oh, yeah. they, could, they, they could transport it in water. And Jane Austen herself... Um, she lived near um, Portsmouth or near Southampton. And so you've got the, the fishing ports. And so she did send off fish to her friends, which is a lovely idea, isn't it? She used to send off souls. There's a reference in one of her letters to sending off souls to her friends, and they, and they were very happy. But she hoped they'd get there um, fresh, oh, she wow. said. So, you know, there was this idea maybe they didn't. But Yeah, <laughs> there was a chance they might not make it. But pies, apparently pies, this is the great thing. People used to send pies all over the country because if you think about pastry, it encloses, you know, something inside, keeps it slightly longer. Yeah. And so I can just imagine, I love this idea of all the all these pies crossing the country to be sent out to everyone. It's a lovely idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we used to send postcards, well, we send postcards at some exactly. point, you know. This is a pie postcard. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, this is so exciting. I'm loving this conversation. I was just going to take a brief pause, but when we come back, I'd like to find out a little bit about what ingredients you most like to cook with. We'll be back in just a moment. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try Welcome back to this show, Let's Do Lunch, with me, Jenny Tishy. I'm your host, and today we are talking to Paul Couchman, who is the Regency chef specialising in 1830s cookery. So, Paul, can I ask you, what are your favourite ingredients to cook with? Okay, so I'm really nerdy about this, and I'm going to say I've got this little allotment, which is basically five minutes where I live. And what we've been doing there is growing everything that I can't get. Oh, wow, (laughs) things um, that you know you should be able to use in your 1800s cookery, but you have to grow yourself in order to have access to it. Yeah, so there's some cucumbers that are mentioned in one of the Jane Austen books I managed to get the seeds for, so that, that's that's coming. Wow, where <laughs> did lo- you get the seeds the, for those? Well, it's just a heritage variety, and that's what's so great, you can get them. They're long and thin cucumbers that apparently she used, or uh, they, they were used in her household. So I can't wait to get those. But what I've also got is quinces. Well, these are things that people know more now, actually, aren't they? Quinces yeah. and gooseberries. Um, gooseberries, you don't see so much in the shop, do you? I used to see them all the time when I'm small. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I love things like that. And also I've, um, I grow a lot of flowers, um, borage and things like that for salads because that looks absolutely beautiful. So I sort of plan ahead. I know that I've got um, a course coming up. I've got to give a Jane. I do a Jane Austen picnic experience, by the way. Wow. How, <laughs> and I need, yeah, go on. What do you include in that? I need some flowers for that. I do a, a, a beautiful salad and um, I put edible flowers on top and it looks so pretty. It's really nice and lovely for a picnic. Yeah. 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 And I guess even oh, things like the salad leaves, you have to ensure that yes. those are of the period because salad leaves yes. are so much more diverse now. Well, or are they? Were they more diverse then? Well, the thing is, um, in Jane Austen's period, that was a great time of salads. From the 17th century onwards, it was a real growth in salads. What happens in the time is they 
we lose that a bit and then it comes back again. Do you see? It gets resurges and goes down. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot of salads in her period. She was she really prized um she had a beautiful cottage garden which is, which the whole family was very proud of. Mm-hmm. And so you, they used to grow salads. But what's interesting, they used to actually cook some of them. So, you know, they did um cucumbers, they've got lots of recipes for cooked cucumbers and cooked salad. The salad to go in a soup as well. I just this is made triggering something for me. It's making me think. Obviously, <laughs> in today's society, we would associate salads with being more of a health food. Is that, mm. is that something that people sort of talked about the nutrition oh, side of things in those days? They used to love their salads, and that's what's so interesting about it. Because we tend to see these tables full of food and always think it's just meat. Mm. But often the vegetables aren't included in the recipes, but they would have been as garnishes round everything, and there would be veg- vegetables. And we know from correspondence that people really enjoyed them. So things like watercress, it's another one that the, uh, the rich and the poor loved, very beloved by people at that point. You know, very healthy. As really you, as you know. healthy. You're really good, yeah, isn't it? Full of it. We always talk about our dark green leafy vegetables in nutrition. We always talk about bitter things in nutrition as well. And it fits both of those profiles, doesn't it? Yeah. So you enjoy... It's just another one. Yeah, Which spinach worry? is another one. Spinach. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so your favourite ingredients to cook with would be um, obviously some of the things that you've had to source yourself and and grow yourself in some cases. Heritage varieties of, for example, the cucumbers and then some of the old-fashioned sort of quince, gooseberries. Um, you talk about flowers, so borage and other flowers that you then decorate your salads with. Um, so what do you think that modern chefs could learn from cooks of the 1800s? Well, there's a few things. I mean, one thing I'm trying to get back is long pepper, which is... Have you heard of long pepper? No. Is it... Go on. Yeah. Well, um, it is a pepper sort, and it's slightly less strong than black pepper. But it was originally used in um, back in the 18th century, was used... Um, alongside black pepper, but it's sort of fallen out of favour. And they're long. They they look a bit like um, dried catkins, ah, if you can yes, imagine. Yes, I do. Yeah, I can. I can. How, how do they vary in taste or differ in taste from so a it's black a pepper? Bit, yeah, they're just a bit milder. Okay. And a bit, yeah, it's just a bit different taste. And I put them in my piccalilli because um, I've got recipes of piccalilli, which is... A, oh, another thing that should... I suppose it is around, but um, it's got quite... Um, What's the word? It's, it's commercialised, and so they, they, the the ones you buy tend not to be as nice as the ones you can make yourself. So if you use really fresh stuff and um, grow, hopefully grow it yourself and put it in and use um, long pepper in it as well, um, it's delicious. I think, I think piccalilli is one of the loveliest pickles you can have, actually. Mm, yeah, no, I do love a piccalilli. Is there anything else that you think that modern chefs could learn from the way in which things were done in the 1800s? Well... I suppose we're going to come on this later, but nose to tail eating. Mm. It's hopefully something that will... I mean, I, I'm i very much a force standard. If you're going to eat meat, then you really should be eating every bit of an animal. Because just to eat, for example, chicken fillets, I mean, that's just... To me, that's just... Yeah, I could go on the whole thing about chicken fillets. <laughs> but if you're going to eat a chicken, get the whole chicken and eat it all. You know, yeah. and and use all those bits because there's a lot more taste in them as well than just those 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 cuts that really tend to taste of nothing. Yeah, let's yeah. talk a little bit about that actually because nose to tail eating it has had a bit of a resurgence in popularity of late, and I know there's certain uh, well, there's a great book isn't there, and I can't think who the chef is. I do know it's some Fergus Henderson. Yes, I've that's got it. both of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's brilliant at championing nose to tail eating. But what were yeah. we doing back then that would make it? 
um, more appealing to the palate. Because I think the problem today is that people have just, it's just fallen out of favour because people have this sort of disgust associated with it. But it, was it to do with the way in which it was prepared in the 1800s that made it yeah. more palatable? But that's it. People don't know what to do with them anymore. And so they have this visceral um, fear of, 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 <laughs> of organs, for example. You know, liver. We have a liver casserole every week at the moment. I, I really do love liver. <laughs> um, and also tripe is, is, is another thing I've got to try and experiment with to try and actually get it tasty. I haven't quite worked. <laughs> Not <laughs> sure anybody has. <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky one. <laughs> but I, th- I think it is just getting used to those slightly... We, you talked about bitter. Mm. Um, when, you, when you're eating some of the other bits of animals that we don't normally eat, they do tend to have a slightly different taste profile. And I think it's just really getting used to it. Mm. And also thinking of what you can combine with these tastes to make those other tastes come out better. Yeah. You know, so it is, it is, and it is another way of cooking. And some of these um, bits that we don't use demand a longer cooking time. Sometimes you might need to marinate them first. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't fit in with this idea that food has to be very quick and instant and uh, done in 30 minutes, you know. I think hopefully we're changing that way of thinking because it's cheaper. And that's the whole point, saving money. If you want to eat meat, if you go for the really um cheap cuts especially stewing steak things like that which i'm i grew up on <laughs> you know that's, that's the sort of food we ate all the time yeah. um yeah yeah try it out yeah um, yeah all, yeah I, I next, have to say, I love the idea yeah. of the liver casserole. Uh, for oh, me, so good. liver is always, you know, pan fried, um, yeah. you know, butter is involved. But actually, uh, what else would you put into the liver casserole? Well, bacon is, mm. is a natural, but also some sweet things because I'm, I, I think it all just needs a, a slight sweetness. So carrots are really good, parsnips, mm. things like that. Um, and, and the thing with liver, well, you probably know, either cook it fast or cook it slow. You know, you can yeah. fr- fr- really, um, really finely chopped a bit like they do in Venice mm-hmm. in those fine slithers and then just pan fried is also really delicious. Yeah. If you want a recipe for that, there's a Jamie Oliver recipe um, that's just amazing for liver. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, look that up as well. So, yeah, look that one up. <laughs> um, <laughs> what sort of ingredients were used back then that are no longer used today? Okay, so I've been. <laughs> this is a bit disgusting. I hope people are eating when I say I'm cooking at this. <laughs> I know you've but just got is... my appetite wetted. Now you're going to completely ruin it. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, I've just been reading. Uh, you know, just before we started, actually, there's um. So there's a thing called ambergris. Ambergris. Yeah. And this comes actually from the sperm whale. So that you know these enormous creatures. Um, It actually comes from the intestinal tract. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yes. And it's it's a sort of... But the thing is, it looks a bit like lard. It really doesn't look like anything. It floats the surface of the water. But it is the price of it, because of what it does, is... It's the price of gold. So if it ever floats the surface on the water near you, go out in a boat and grab as much of it as you can (laughs) to know what you're looking for. But they use it in the perfume industry, but it was also used in cooking because, um, especially in the 18th century, because that whole distinction between smells and taste was a bit vaguer. So you've got musk being used in cooking as well, which is, we, you know, I think we struggle with that now. But you also have things like rose water and orange blossom water, which I do think are quite lovely. Yeah. But this, this idea of scent being um, in your food. And ambergris, now what did it say about it? it they describe it as 
when it's fresh, it's a bit. Fe- <laughs> What's that word? It's 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 not nice. But I'll put it that way because okay. where it comes from. But it does change, and it can actually taste like violets. Wow, has that smell of what, yeah. Like how was ambergris used? Was it? You said it looked a bit like lard. Was it used as? An they used it in puddings as well. Oh, it can okay. go in anything. It's. I think it's very much. If you think about truffles, right? That idea of this almost otherworldly smell, taste, sensation that you're getting in your food. Um, very few people have actually smelled um, it. I really want to smell it now. After yeah. that. <laughs> really <laughs> it sounds really mysterious. And there isn't much written about it. There's one guy that's just written, he wrote a, a few years ago, a book about it because there wasn't much on the internet at all. It was all very, you know, yeah. very, very mysterious. So I'm intrigued by this. It's things like that. So, you wonder how on earth did someone, A, discover it, B, decide to taste it and C, put it, start then using it in a war, you know, in a wider context. It's quite... I always think... Yeah. yeah, I always think it's about money, you know, and yeah. about, you know, if something's really hard to get, really, like truffles. Truffles is a really good example, isn't it? If it's really yeah. hard to get, people develop a taste for it, mm. which they might not have had if it was, you know, really easy to get. I think the same about caviar. I'm not quite sure Indeed. that I get it. And I sort of yeah. think well, it just must be the fact that it's so hard to get or it's so difficult yeah. to, yeah. Is there anything else, any other ingredients that you think, oh, gosh, well, I'm glad we don't use those today? Oh God, you see, I'm quite good about that. I'm, I'm, I think we talked earlier about the aspic. Um, mm. I did make this. I had to make it for a demonstration, eggs in aspic. And I, yeah, and, and even the looks of the people when I, when I showed them it, um, it, there is something about an egg inside a sort of transparent jelly and the whole thing wobbling. I, I find that quite hard. Yeah. And I don't know if I really want the savoury jelly to come back. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think there's something not necessarily right about it. I mean, things like jelly deals, are they something that kind of came about in the 1800s? Because that's a very texturally specific food, isn't it? Yeah, um, I don't know about the jelly deal. I have a, I have a book about eels that I've still got to read. But <laughs> There must be so much that you just think, oh, wow, goodness. I'd love to know more, I'd love to know more. But of course... Smoked eel. Smoked eel, It's amazing, yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this oh, sort of knowledge, it doesn't just exist out there. Well, not a lot of like you said about the ambergris, there being almost like nothing on the internet. Yeah. We rely so heavily, don't we, in modern times, yes. on the internet, on you know the search engines. But I mean, I guess for you, a lot of this information is actually having to come from real books. Oh. Oh, um, my partner, honestly. It's like, <laughs> you've got said, another he, one. <laughs> well, it is a bit like that. He says, um, it's Paul's book of the day, he says. <laughs> so there's another book that comes through and I'm just obsessed. So I buy lots and lots of these these wonderful cookery books because you can learn so much from them. Yeah. You know, I love I love this idea of, you know, seeing recipes in different places and then comparing them. And yes, I'm very nerdy about it. No, I love it. <laughs> um, so thinking of that, because I know uh, one thing we sort of discussed earlier or touched on earlier on was the fact that very much integrated within a recipe book, you'd also have um, sort of medical recipes or, um, you know, recipes for medicine. So food as medicine is a concept that was very much sort of present then, wasn't it? I mean, it was a slightly different guy I suppose but what have you learned about 1800s recipes through you know all the research or the books you've read the recipe and they're, they're fascinating so I've got my own I don't know if I've told you but somebody on Instagram said I have a, a, a manuscript cookbook would you like it from the 1830s and I said yes please and she turned up with a shopping trolley and in the bottom of the shopping trolley along with loads of jelly mold she gave me which is lovely was this um, book from the 1830s and it's handwritten and there are recipes in it the recipes I mean it's lovely there's um 
bread jelly for weak people i think was one of my favorites for weak people <laughs> quite generic yes, yes. <laughs> so there, there is this idea a lot of them have sugar in them so there's this idea that sugar is very good for for people who are ill so there's a lot of sweet things in there and lots of alcohol as well and sometimes you get sugary alcohol <laughs> sugary alcohol jellies as well which is quite you know a, a port jelly for for a weak person is quite is another one i found <laughs> so a lot of them are like that and some of them are actually quite dangerous because i was looking at some of the ingredients i post a lot of these recipes on twitter and people are telling me you can't put that you know that, that that will kill you if you have that i think it was rue r-u-e it's one of those herbs and it was in one of the instructions and it's actually poisonous you, you if you eat too much of it you will kill yourself wow and it was there as one of the recipes yeah and then there's cures for plague as well all these sort of things which probably you know i'm sure didn't work but yeah and it, like he was writing just, them they're certainly not qualified you know medical no, professionals that, that are creating these I think the trouble is, and with medical science back then, is that you would try anything. Mm. And so these recipes would be circulated over and over again and people would have a go at them. But for a lot of the um, the illnesses that people had, there was no cure. You know, so it's yeah. just this idea of giving something and hoping. And, you know, it's quite desperate when you look through the recipes and you think, well, none of these are going to work. But occasionally, of course, and you probably know more about this than I do, is that you've got this knowledge of these women that was passed down from the medieval period that actually a lot of the things did work. Yeah, you know, they, yeah, they these, do, don't yeah. they? Yeah, they're family yeah, traditions, yeah. but you're like, oh, well, that, but they I work. chop that onion yeah. up and put sugar on it and put it in my bedroom when I've got the flu. I get over it. <laughs> Are those... <laughs> But also, I mean, they, they have recipes that contain, I don't know which herb it is now, but there were um, like aspirin and stuff come originally from, from herbs. And so people would use them and they did cure pain. Yeah, the and salicylic acid, then, isn't it, in aspirin, which it. comes in lots of go. other things. Yeah. Um, and what about, I mean, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? I was going to ask you about um, some of the ingredients that were actually poisonous. So arsenic was one yes. of the examples of it. It was used as a food colouring, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, if you come across yes. other ingredients that you might think of today is either poisonous or just not very palatable we're just going back on that arsenic um it was wonderful i got this lovely victorian um expert and she was telling me that if you do time travel to the victorian period you know one day yeah. it might happen um <laughs> don't eat if you're gonna eat the sweets eat the white ones don't eat the don't eat the green ones <laughs> don't eat the blue ones they've all they've all basically got some form of poison in them that would gradually kill you but the white ones are the, are the safest you said yeah and like you said about the arsenic what was the other question so um, the if there are any other infinite. ingredients from the 1800s that are actually poisonous so we've talked about the rue being this uh are you being this herb that was poisonous that was in some of the rest yeah that's the only one i can think mm. of at the moment i mean yeah i mean the thing is with all of this you know you 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 try things out and if they if they're gonna poison you don't eat them again so there is you know it does <laughs> don't make it into thing. the next uh, edition of the recipe book <laughs> No, I mean, that one killed the, a few people. So the famous one, though, going back to another time, though, the famous one is is lead. Did you know about the lead poisoning from the from the Greeks and the Romans? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, of course. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So I'm, I'm just just to the just to the listeners. I mean, the uh, the high elite would eat from lead um, dishes, mm. and obviously over a period of time, it's a neo. It, get this right, it's a neurotoxin, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's and, right. And gradually, yeah. it can it can destroy your brain, mm. and so that was more prominent in the rich people 
well, it wasn't the poor who couldn't afford to eat out of lead. Yeah, so it's well, it's the thing things, that we yeah, see the, the, today with toxicity from exposure to, you know, things like water pipes, just simple things yes. like that. But if you live in an old yes. house, it can happen and, and you know, people yeah. don't realise it. So, I mean, obviously we're talking about some of the negatives, <laughs> but let's talk about some of the mm. positives. What would you say is the greatest legacy of 1800s cookery that has survived to the modern day? Oh, I'm just going to say Christmas. Yes, of course. <laughs> we mentioned yeah. it before. But most of our food um, that we eat at Christmas and that we love comes from, um, well, even before the 1800s, actually. It's got a long, long tradition. But things like trifle, I'm, I'm going to go on about trifle, trifle one of the <laughs> best foods there is. Yeah, mince pies go right back as well. Um, Christmas pudding is another one. All these sort of cakes, and the cakes as well, and these come a bit later in the Victorian period, but a lot of the cakes that we've got now come from the 1800s, you know, and not too much has changed, especially the ones we really like, you know, like fruit cake. That's got a long tradition. Um, things like hocus buns as well. It's another thing that um, has stuck around and, and, and you know, people still love. Um, but I do say, if you're going to make them, do make your own and don't buy the supermarket ones because they're just not the same. It's a very different experience, isn't it? Very and you different. run a course on hot cross buns, don't you? Yeah, so just a few weeks ago, I did, um, I think it was 25 people we had from again from all over the world Brilliant. and we made hot cross buns together it was great fun yeah i love that and um, just going back to christmas what was the traditional sort of main meat that people would have had on christmas day would it have been a turkey or not well this is great um there's a whole book written on this um that i've just got actually but the thing is at christmas people tended to eat lots and lots of different meats you know so you've got this whole tradition of roast beef turkey was one of the things they ate and turkey's great because it's really big mm. so you can serve a lot of people with it so that was one of the reasons but this whole idea that turkey that's more later in the victorian period that turkey becomes the main thing right so i really say to people don't worry too much about sticking to turkey because before that period people used to eat all sorts of other things mm, you know yeah. there are nicer things to eat as well i don't know about you maybe you love turkey but there are lots of nice things to eat at christmas and i do but my family don't so they would welcome the opportunity for a different uh, form of protein i think on a christmas meal <laughs> Yeah, I mean, venison is delicious, you know, mm. things like that, because venison is also very sustainable. So really, our meat we should be eating, yeah. and it's delicious. I really, really like it. So uh, have some venison at Christmas, haunch of venison. It sounds very Christmassy, doesn't it? Much better idea. Do you know, I, yeah. I'd love to ask you a little bit more, actually. So let's just take a brief pause and then come back. I'd love to ask you a little bit about some of the ingredients that were perhaps imported, those that were available at the time, but also how people even shopped for their ingredients back then, because I'm sure it differed greatly. We'll be back in just a moment. Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Welcome back to this show. Let's do lunch with me, Jenny Tishi. And today I am talking to Paul Couchman, who is also known as the Regency Cook and specialises in 1830s British cookery. So, Paul, we've been talking a lot about some of the legacies of 1800s cookery, things that have survived to today that really should have done, things that, thank goodness, didn't, some of the things that were perhaps a little bit poisonous, not so good for us, and a little bit about food as medicine. But let's talk a little bit about the ingredients ingredient side of things so obviously you know today if we think about the food industry people expect strawberries all year round they expect to be able to get their avocados and they expect them to be ripe on time what sort of ingredients did people have available and what were they able to get that was imported during the 1800s so 
That's really interesting. So the the thing about, especially, it's spices is the main thing. I'm just going to go back to the medieval periods because I've got a lovely analogy about spices. But, and also a, a myth I want to bust, actually, because people tend to, you know this myth, you've probably heard this myth, that people use spices in the medieval period because the meat was off and so the spice would cover up the flavour of gone off meat. I've heard that, yes. Yes. Absolutely ridiculous because spices were imported, but they had to take all these long la- uh, land routes, you know, across, you know, and, and if you think about the amount of people that would change, so that you, you, you get the spices at one place, it goes to the hands of one person, gets a bit more expensive, goes to another one, gets a bit more expensive. And by the time you've got to, say, London, uh, these things are incredibly expensive. And they say that the price of spices in that period was the weight of gold. It was the same price. Gosh. So imagine putting that on your food or on your off meat you just wouldn't do it would you <laughs> waste all that to ruin something well that you've spent a lot of money on yeah yeah exactly well other people compare it to the price of hard drugs as well you know the, yeah. it, the price yeah price per gram is it's incredibly expensive and you just don't do that wow. so to show off your wealth at that point you use spices liberally obviously but yeah. um that's the point is though uh, quite through the 1700s onwards it, the, the spices get cheaper so they were more affordable okay um, so they did get to the point where people yeah there's no prestige anymore and people actually turn off them so in the 18th century you get a turn away from very spicy food and it becomes a bit more like the sort of um that more traditional french food you know with the sauces and stuff and that sort of almost bland bland taste becomes more popular interesting so there's a turn away but it's like with with trends it's everything isn't it you get one period where it's very heavily spiced Mm. that goes then to lighter spice and then obviously you get spiced again and you see that through britain's history as well you get um quite bland 50s food and then 70s and 80s come along and and, you know the taste for food of the world changes as well Mm. so it's a it's in a constant flux it really is isn't it it's fascinating and then how that changes the value of spices over time you know how they're valued as in are they something you want to show off like your caviar or your champagne or whatever or are they something that you just you know you're definitely not like you say going to use to ruin your already ruined meat Uh, i love the fact that we're now busting those myths that's great and what about how people shopped back then you know i know again today if we make comparisons to um modern shopping it's convenience stores it's you know on every corner and it's supermarkets and it's you know hypermarkets in some case um what how and when did people shop so you get this change from market stores, which we know, and markets continue as well. And the house I work in, um, just a few streets away, um, there was a covered market that was quite prestigious. And so people would have the food very close to where they lived, you know, within walking distance. But you also get people coming around. We mentioned people selling food to eat on the streets, but you also get um, people selling food as ingredients on the streets. And we have this lovely description of the fish women that used to turn up on the doorsteps and knock on the door and um, try and sell their fish. <laughs> but also girls selling cherries, you know, you know, those, those matchstick girls and all of the, you know, all these, yeah. all these people who would often come in from the country and the country wasn't far away. So they would walk in in the morning with the produce straight from the farms and would sell it as quickly as they could. Mm. Um, so everything was very fresh, wasn't it? And well, just, indeed. Yeah. They actually bought, which is also lovely, and we don't think about this too much, but um, we have now, um, we slaughter animals quite far away from where the food is eaten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in this period, you had to slaughter meat quite near. And so 
geese would arrive, sheep would arrive. There, you know, in the mornings there would be roads full of animals turning up in these in these in these towns, ready to be um, sold on or slaughtered. In, you know, very small scale slaughter houses that were probably just around the corner from where you lived. You know, it's very different to the way we consume meat now. It's a, this whole distinction between town and country was also a bit more vague, you know, because yeah. when you've got street, you know, sheep coming down the the high street, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what is the country? You know, <laughs> yeah, and that's I, I loved it. Do you remember during the pandemic, they um, when the streets were so quiet, they would have <laughs> sheep turned up and stuff. And I love that connection with the past because that's how it would have been. It, how it you know, would have been. been. There wouldn't normal. have been cars. Yeah. The animals would have taken no. precedence. And and I guess exactly. the other thing, storage, right? So you know, people yes. may have had uh, an ice box, or, or if they were lucky, right, they would have had if an they area lucky, where they could have kept yeah. things like that. But otherwise, you would buy everything because you couldn't store it. You couldn't keep yes. meat fresh. You couldn't keep milk fresh. You'd have to consume it pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. We've got what's lovely in the townhouse. We actually have areas where the food would have been kept. So I know I can stand in those areas and feel the temperatures as well. So they have cool spaces. Yeah, you know, often under the um, under the um, under the ground at the back, we have a, a cheese cellar, which has a consistent temperature right through the year, which is lovely. It's lovely to stand in there if it's a very hot day as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just going to be a cheese for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but people know. would have those spaces in the houses, yeah. and so that's how they, they, how they did manage to keep things. Mm. Exactly. They were designed because they had to store you know, small amounts anyway and mm. keep things fresh. So every house would have a cold space, as it yeah. were. Well, it yeah. reminds me of the, the house I grew up in was built in 1846, and we had a cellar downstairs, yeah. which was horribly you know, cold, and, but it's where my parents kept the wine. So maybe there Perfect. was something, some truth in that. Um, <laughs> so people shop differently, obviously. Um, how about measurements? You know, again, today you know, we are in our typical, you know, we think of things in you know, grams. We don't think, well, I think measurements have moved from pounds and ounces. But, you know, we, how did people measure back then? Were they measuring in a, a, a system that we'd recognise today or was it a different system? Yeah, so weights, if you think about, you know, weights are quite normal, um, even right back in the in the period. But they're expensive and some people often didn't have access to them. Mm. So what you tend to do, and this I've... It's it's also in building um, because I had to do some restoration of the house. They used to measure often. We're using the body, right? And so things be measured. You know about hands for yes. measuring horses and things like that. Yeah. But you've also got some examples. Um, the weight of a spice that can fit upon a sixpence. I thought was quite nice. Oh wow! So it's not sixpence. using grams. It's not using ounces. It's using a physical object to show you how to weigh yeah. something out. Yeah. And there's things like pinch. A pinch was actually um, a standard measure as well. And I think there's a two pinch one as well. Baskets for lo- for larger quantities. Um, every fi- if you think about anything that's in plastic now, mm. it would be in a basket then. So basket was a way of measuring as well. So you'd have different oh, size baskets. Baskets. Yeah. And there's something called a pottle. I think that was what they measured um, strawberries in, a sort of um, a rush uh, a sort of rush basket that they put strawberries in. And I think what's funny, I think they're roughly the same size as the baskets we have now. So what you tend to have with, especially with um, the continuity in measurements and stuff, is that things don't change unless they have to. Mm. And so often, you know, things are... Uh, yeah, things are the same because they just carry on being the same and, and they only get changed when they have to be changed. And so, yeah, you can look 
in many different ways and <laughs> find this out but I, I just think it's fascinating it is yeah. fascinating isn't it yeah using your hand as a measure and also yes. i wonder whether that's where the american cup system we, we you know came from yes that's, that that's a whole other a whole other conversation oh, if um, you ever give an online course a cup is is that's just one of the worst things yeah that ever came very, along <laughs> it's a very difficult measurement because you have to know what the what you're measuring is because it varies so much doesn't it with flour and sugar and yes <sighs> and then liquids and yeah no, exactly, exactly. Um, and what about kitchenalia you must have come across your fair share of um fascinating kitchenalia you know equipment that was used in the kitchen in those days what what's been your favorite that you've seen or found so far well um we've got a, a thing that used to be we used to think it was a cookie cutter but actually a little press for butter and mm-hmm. it's so pretty it's got a little flower on it and it's yeah. a bit like um like a very big thimble and it's got a push thing that goes through it. I love things like that. I love, um, what's the other thing we use to, uh, to raise the pie? Those little pie, um, uh, vent, uh, they vent the pie. Oh, I know. Yes. Sometimes pie you buy funnel. them. In, yes. Sometimes you buy pie them and have a crow on the top, don't they? That's it. I've yeah. got a whole, whole collection of pie funnels. Um, also the little pots, anything that was, we know like jam jars, they have these very beautiful ceramic pots for them. And I've got a collection of sieves as well because sieves were incredibly important. Um, because if you want to puree anything, what you had to do was push it through a, a whole system of sieves to get it into the right consistency. So you have these... Um, so brilliant. Yeah, isn't it lovely? I love so I love all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's also, you know, so we talk about things going full circle. We're talking so much today about the way in which people are reducing their environmental impact, but there just wasn't the environmental impact in these ways of doing things. There's so much yes. that we could learn. The nose-to-tail yes. eating, the use of ceramics, the use of, you know, reusable equipment as opposed to throwaway equipment and packaging. This so much here that we could just try and and create or recreate that would help yeah. our environment so much isn't there yeah <laughs> yeah right. I mean, we just need to learn don't we we need to learn from the past really mm. yeah because yeah, we're not necessarily doing better things now sometimes i think no That's i think the there's, thing, just, isn't there's, it? there's so much in this uh, well i've got so many more questions to ask you but we're running out of time so i am going to ask <laughs> you to tell people a little bit about where they can find out more if they want to come and enjoy some of your experiences if they want to do any of your online courses where do they find out more paul so I've got a website and it's easy. It's my name. So it's www.paulcouchman.co.uk. Yeah. And then if you really like um, historic recipes and stuff like that and a bit of fun, and I've got a Twitter account, which I'm quite active on, and it's um, The Readers Who Cook on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, just join in the, um, in the hilarious conversations that we have about food and food equipment and um, 18th century uh, <laughs> cookbooks as well yeah that's brilliant i love it um excellent and what are your plans for the future so coming up as i hinted before um i did it last year we have the jane austen i called it the jane austen picnic experience which is an online course and you create a picnic that jane austen probably would have eaten and you can do that online with me and you can be anywhere in the world and um we can um use we, it's about four recipes we do together and it's great fun yeah. a lot of fun a lot of you get food and history together yes yeah, wonderful always, always i think that, that will be up a lot of people's streets indeed um okay on to our quick fire questions if you were to have Ooh. one last meal on earth your death ray meal we call it what would it be it's going to be an 18th century trifle i've mentioned it before yeah. so you get naples biscuits you get um no jelly um okay. there's a beautiful egg custard um whipped cream on top and the secret ingredients to the whipped cream is a dash of mustard powder wow okay <laughs> why mustard powder 
It's a bit like if you put chilli into chocolate and okay. you don't really taste the chilli, it gives a lift and it also makes it not too sweet. On the radio today, we've been talking about the new, I don't know if you've heard it, the new um, coronation chicken, which is actually a sort of lemon trifle. And they were, uh, they, were, they were saying how sweet it is. And so this is a trifle that isn't too sweet because mm. I think that's really important. It's got to have a slight tang to it from citron and it mustn't have too much sugar in it okay. so that's my definite meal, meal. Yeah. Yeah. who would you say is your favorite chef um i mentioned eliza acton i do like eliza acton because she combines recipe writing with poetry oh. when you read her recipes they are like little she was a poet so that was what she wanted to do originally and so she's managed to combine the two and there's lots to love about her recipes and fergus henderson i've mentioned mm. as well i love the two um books um the, the restaurant st john is a marvelous place to go to as well in london if you can go to one restaurant go to st john it's it's fabulous um yeah, Eliza Acton. She was the the chef that like you said that was putting together recipes. The first person really to put method and ingredients separately. Yes. So she wasn't. Yes. So she wanted to be a, a poet. But how did she get into cooking? I'm fascinated by that. Well, there's a lovely book, and there's it's a fiction book, but they mm-hmm. they try to explain what might have happened. There's a lot of mystery about Eliza Acton, so we're not quite sure about the... But we know that she did publish poetry books, mm. and we know that later she published cookery books. Yeah. So you can put those two things together as well. Yeah. But she was very successful. The book was printed, and a lot of it, unfortunately, was used by uh, Mrs. Beaton. So if you know ah, Mrs. Beaton's cookery yes, book, I do. a lot of that... Even on purpose or by accident, ended a lot of Eliza Acton's recipes by purpose or by accident ended up in <laughs> Mrs. Beaton's book. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. I'd love to know the background there. We need to have yeah. like a historic, you know, detective. <laughs> um, where would you like to eat that you've not eaten yet? Oh, this is a really good question. <laughs> you see, I want to eat. Um, in one of the country houses mm. it doesn't really matter what they serve me actually but I just want to eat in one of the dining rooms especially um, Royal Crescent Bath I went to and saw the kitchens there so I'd like to I'd like to sit and eat on that table there with the view over the Crescent yeah, of Bath it's a wonderful place to be and if you held a fantasy dinner party with four people from the past the present can't really be the future um, who would they be and why would you invite them Okay, so I'm going to go. This is quite controversial, really, but um, I'm going to go with Fanny Craddock because I always liked her. I'm going to do two from now, actually. So I've got Nigel Slater and Nigella because I just love both of them. Mm-hmm. I think that I could learn so much from both of them. Um, and then I've got to take one more person. There is, um, yeah, it's the um, 18th century cook, Karim, he, he's called. He cooked for the Prince Regent at the Royal Pavilion for about six months. <laughs> but he cooked for the, the famous all over Europe as well. And wow. so I like him as well. So yes, that's I my four people. Yes, I have Karim. Royal Pavilion in Brighton, yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you, Paul, a.k.a. the Regency Chef. Pleasure. Um, I've learned so much. And like I say, I had so many questions and I still haven't asked all of them. So I'm sure we'll converse again in some way shape or form um, but what you've been able to impart today has been absolutely fascinating from your knowledge of 1800s cookery to even like you say the history beyond that and why people cooked that way in the 1800s going back into the sort of medieval times where it was probably quite difficult to find this information uh, I'm amazed at your wealth of, and depth of knowledge but it proves that you are passionate about what you do so the Regency Cook um, if you want to know more information people that are listening Listening in, it is www.paulcouchman.co.uk. On Twitter, the Regency Cook, and on Instagram, you're the Regency Cook too, aren't you? 
That's right. Yeah, Instagram's fun as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. It absolutely. Is. <laughs> that's, um, that's how I got the cookbook. After all, that is how I got my manuscript cookbook. So yeah, wow, Instagram's worked brilliant. very well for me. It works, doesn't it? Absolutely <laughs> works. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone that listening in. This is Jenny Tishi. It's Let's Do Lunch on River Radio. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. You can download the show afterwards and listen to it again if you go to anywhere you normally get your podcasts from. It will be there. So that's Google. It's Apple. It's wherever you normally Spotify is another one. Um, if you'd like to leave a review, they're always welcome. And thank you very much to our guest today, the Regency cook, Paul Couchman. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bracknell, Wokingham, Wokingham, Henley, Henley. Reading. Okay! Ta-da!